We want to welcome you tonight to Plum Creek Chapel, and we're going to continue our study of how to read and understand the Bible. Uh, I want to point out our Tuesday podcast yesterday was a really fascinating discussion, Current Events and the Urgency of the Hour. If you've not listened to that yet, go to notbyworks.org or the Not By Works podcast channel on whatever podcast app you use, and be sure you listen to that. Really some interesting uh, current events discussions, and then, of course, bringing it all back to uh, how we can use that to talk about the urgency of uh, the hour. And then uh, we had a great uh, class on Sunday at 9 o'clock. It kind of turned into an impromptu Q&A, because <laughs> I think I got through one point. Uh, but that's great. I love it. And it was a wonderful uh, wonderful discussion and a lot of great questions. That's what I love about Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, just really well-studied group. And so um, so you encourage you to watch that as well. That's up at the Not By Works uh, and Plum Creek uh, websites. Or if you just want to listen to the audio, all of our messages are available both in video and podcast format. Now, some people like to listen to the audio while they're driving or working. They can't sit down and look at a screen. So either way, check that out. Uh, as uh, well. And then, uh, yeah, I also want to continue to remind you about the formal self-paced independent study course. If you'd like to dig a little bit deeper into this topic of how to uh, interpret the Bible, uh, you can check that out at notbyworks.org. Uh, and with that, let's get started uh, tonight. So uh, some of you may have brought with you your uh, figures of speech exercise that we were going to do two weeks ago. We, didn't have, we ran out of time, and then last week we were uh, snowbound, and so we did it uh, remotely only. Uh, but if you didn't bring it, that's fine. I made more copies, and frankly, I added some more questions to the exercise anyway. So the ones from, that we previously handed out in person here uh, are obsolete anyway. For those of you watching the video or joining us uh, via live stream, I'll have each of the uh, questions up on the screen, so you'll uh, you'll be able to do that. Yeah, if you would pass those out, that'd be great. Okay, so let's just set the stage, uh, kind of where we're at in this study. This is part 13 of how to read and understand the Bible. Uh, the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. So when we sit down uh, in front of the Bible and we begin to read it, how do we handle it? How do we cut straight is the term that Paul used. Uh, how do we uh, correctly handle the Word of God? That's what this study uh, is all about. So we said we're basically right here at step one in the five-step paradigm that I'm using, uh, and that is study the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context. And then having done that, you can broaden the focus, compare Scripture with Scripture, and eventually come up with a clear belief statement. What does the Bible say about whatever? Fill in the blank. Uh, so that's kind of what we've been uh, talking about. We haven't uh, shown this uh, diagram in several weeks, and I think it's important to keep uh, this big picture in mind. When we talk about the Bible, we're talking about studying what at one point was truth in God's mind that became modern English versions that now ultimately becomes truth in the reader's mind. So the Bible is God's way of giving us everything we need that he wanted us to know. It's his self-revelation to mankind. It's, it's like the guidebook or the instruction manual for human beings, our, the highest pinnacle of creation. So everything we need for life and godliness is in here. And we need to keep that in mind that when we're studying the Word of God, if we're doing it correctly, 
truth is being deposited in our minds. Now, we expanded this out, and we said it kind of, there's a lot of things that go from the beginning of time, 6,000 years ago, or the beginning of God's written revelation to mankind, which started 1446 B.C., so 3,500 years ago, uh, to getting to where we are studying the Bible in our churches today and, and, you know, American evangelicalism. And so we went through some of these. We talked about revelation, uh, uh, truth in the author's mind, and how through inspiration they wrote the original manuscripts. Through canonicity, we discovered the 66 books that are, in fact, inspired. We talked about the doctrine of preservation. talked a little bit about how scholars take a look at the thousands of manuscripts or manuscript fragments that are available in Greek uh, and translate that into modern English Bibles. We have not yet uh, gotten to the formal discussion about illumination uh, and interpretation, uh, or about illumination anyway. We're talking about interpretation right now. But it's through that process that it becomes truth in our minds, and then ultimately, of course, the goal is to change our lives. It's not just about information. It's information with a goal to life change. Uh, so keep that big picture in mind, too. Before we uh, move forward with our uh, study of figures of speech, which we're going to kind of close out that study tonight, uh, I want to see do some retention skills here. Uh, how many, uh, who, who in here, is anybody in here, be, would you be able to name, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but would you be able to name the 66 books of the Bible? You can. Some of you kids, any of you adults? Did you raise your hand? Good, yeah. All right, so let's make it a little simpler. Do you remember some of the categories of the books of the Bible? Remember, we, we, we haven't talked about it yet, but we've mentioned it several times, genre. We're going to talk about the different genres or categories. And uh, Do you remember some of those categories of biblical books? To call, holl holler them out. Historical. What's that? Historical. Historical, good. Poetry. Poetry or wisdom, prophetic. What else, anything? Think New Testament. Letters. Yeah, the letters or the epistles, right? Letters, doctrinal letters. Someone said prophecy. Uh, Gospels. Gospels is what I'm looking for. Yeah, that's its own uh, category. So we need to keep this in mind because as we're going to see, and we're going to get into some of this, I think, tonight. It depends on kind of where the discussion takes us. But just as there are different ways of uh, uh, coming at and tackling you know, English literature, depending on what you're reading, similarly with biblical literature, uh, there are different rules of interpretation for the different types uh, of literature. So uh, we need to recognize that as well. So we are in the midst and kind of using as our roadmap these 24 rules of interpretation. And I won't go back and read these to you again just for the sake of time. Uh, but we've kind of worked our way through some grammatical, I mean, some general principles of interpretation and uh, just basically. Uh, fundamental rules, uh, things like recognize that the Bible is authoritative. It's the very Word of God. It's infallible. It's perfect. Uh, then we got into some grammatical rules. We talked about a very important one, which is the singularity of meaning, that each passage only has one meaning. And we talked about context, and we frequently referenced this concentric circles of context idea and talked about the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. And then we got into... Uh, ideas related to figures of speech. And so uh, that's kind of where we left off. Uh, and we, last week, from a remote uh, uh, setting in my uh, 
bunker in the basement, I call it. Uh, we talked about, we reviewed several types of figures of speech and went through those. I added a few more. I hope you've had a chance to watch that if you didn't join us by live stream uh, last week. I talked about some new ones like uh, Paradox was a new one that we had not previously discussed. I added um, Apostrophe was a new one that we added to the list. And uh, then it seems like there was another one, uh, Idiom. Yeah, I talked about Idiom. That was something that uh, I think Gary had brought up at a previous in-person uh, study, and I had kind of said, well, idioms aren't necessarily figures of speech because they're unique to a culture. Well, within that culture, they're a figure of speech. They're just not universal figures of speech. I mean, idioms are universal, but a particular idiom is not universal. Does that make sense? In other words, every culture has idioms, but an idiom in Spanish might not be the same idiom in English, is the idea. But it's still worth noting because we see some of those uh, in uh, the biblical uh, text. So then I, I went through 10 rules for discerning literal versus figurative meaning, uh, which I adapted from uh, Howard Hendricks in his Living by the Book, which is a great book that should be in everyone's library. And, uh, and then I don't think we'll go through those again just for the sake of time, but that brings us to a place where we can kind of put into practice some of these rules. So I've given you a handout. I think, did I print the right thing? Yeah, these are, this is a list. Oh, you know what? I printed the wrong thing. I intended to print for you just to make it convenient for you, the list of the figures of speech. Instead, I figured, instead I printed the actual exercise. So, oh well, you're going to have to work off of memory, but I can put them up uh, on the screen uh, as well. But let's just kind of, you'll probably remember most of them. Let's just work through them one at a time. So we actually kind of gave a sneak peek at the first four or five. So let's review that for people that weren't here. But uh, my enemies are like dogs. What kind of figure of speech is that? Simile, Simile right? My enemies are dogs. Metaphor, good. It's just basically A is B. Uh, and now we'll get into some examples from Scripture. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What is it? Merism. A merism. Very good. Part for the whole. Um, and then uh, we use this example where Paul told the Corinthians, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. Good. All right. Uh, and then uh, here's Psalm 130. Lord, let thine ears be attentive to my supplications. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Good. All right, that is what? Ascribing human characteristics to God. All right, now let's cover some new ground. Uh, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. Well, you can tell by where I stopped that perhaps the figure of speech is in that first half of the verse. Let me ask it this way. Is it possible for God to be unjust? You're shaking your head. You should be shouting, yes. I mean, no, it's not possible, right? <laughs> no, is it possible for God to be unjust? No. Of course not, right? So what is, 
the author of Hebrews doing here when he says God is not unjust? Is he implying that God could be just? In this case, he could be unjust. In this case, he's not. Yes. I was going to say Lytotes. exactly. Emphasizing the positive by denying the negative, or emphasizing, as we said, the opposite, right? God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love. It's, it's, when, when, so this is a very helpful principle to remember. Just because you see you know, something, you know, he just, this, this is not that, doesn't mean that it could be possible, right? Um, so it's a way of emphasizing uh, the opposite, saying God is particularly just. Okay? God is especially just. So I don't think I have this one on the screen, but flip over to Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. Or, yeah, 3, verse 5. This is a verse that has uh, uh, lent itself to a lot of bad interpretation and bad theology, frankly, because people didn't recognize that the author, in this case, of course, John wrote Revelation of the Inspiration of the Spirit, but in this case, he's writing the words of Jesus, who's speaking here in these letters to the churches. And notice what he says in Revelation 3.5. Jesus says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Well, does that mean it's possible to have your name blotted out? Well, could be, if he's speaking literally here. But this is a litotes, and we know from comparing scripture to, from comparing scripture with scripture that once you become born again, you cannot have your name taken from the book of life. In the context here, he's talking about particular methods of commendation or recognition. He's going to wear white clothes. He's going to be receive special confession before the Father, and not you know he's. He's, I'm not going to blot out your name. I'm going to highlight it. I'm going to put a star by it. I'm going to emphasize it. And yet some people, especially those who are from a more Arminian or Wesleyan perspective, will point to this verse time and again to say, see, Jesus even said he can blot your name out of the book of life. You better watch what you're doing. If you're not behaving and straight, you know, you know, performing righteous acts, then you're going to be erased from the book of life. The Bible never says that. And this is the only reference that they build that on, and this is an example of a litotes. And it's actually fairly easy to see here because there's three things that are mentioned, and all of them have to do with uh, highlighting or emphasizing or recognizing, right? Uh, so this is, this is why figures of speech matter and understanding them. So everybody follow me on that? When Jesus says, I will not blot out his name, he's saying I'm going to emphasized. I'm going to star it. He, this is one of my special ones, kind of an idea. Make sense? Okay. Uh, here's one. Um, a cave was there, and Saul went in to cover his feet. Anybody? Go ahead. Synecdoche? A synecdoche? synecdoche no. How, how, why were you thinking it might be a synecdoche? Because it's only covering part of him? No, but... Would it be a metamine then? No. What does he mean? Let's start with that. Going to the bathroom. Exactly. Ooh. Going to the bathroom. In fact, <laughs> if you look at every, every English translation other than the King James, I think even the New King James, let me verify that, 
it's going gonna, it's gonna to paraphrase it and it's going to say Saul, Saul went in to relieve himself or something like that. Let me see how uh, the New King James translates it. All you people that have your books of the Bible memorized probably found it before I did. Um, Saul went in to attend to his needs. So, uh, attend to his needs would be a euphemism Right? You know, there, there are other more crude and medical ways that one might say, you know, relieve himself. But this is kind of an example not only of a, of a, of a euphemism, but it's also a Hebrew idiom. So can you think of why in the Hebrew culture they would have come up with a euphemistic way to express, you know, using the restroom, which, by the way, is also a, a euphemism in English, <laughs> I mean, what does it mean to use the restroom? Well, we know what it means, but it's a, it's a polite way of saying, you know, powder my nose or, you know, whatever, right? Um, why, would, why would this have become a euphemism for, I can't say it without using a euphemism because I don't want to be crude, but re relieving yourself. Well, think about the clothing, right, that, that they wore in the ancient Near East, robes, right? So if you're going to use the restroom, what are you going to do? Males and feet. You're going to take your robes off. Where do they land? On your feet. So you cover your feet, which is a way to say disrobe so that you can use the restroom, right? So this is going to get into something that we're going to talk about if we don't get there tonight in the coming weeks about how important it is to recognize culture and history and those types of things. Because, again, if you just come at this literally, you, first of all, you're going to wonder, what did that mean? Were his feet cold? Did he go into the cave to put socks on? You know, what, what was he doing exactly, right? But uh, in this case, most modern English translations, remember the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, not English, they will make the connection for you. And, you know, I guess in a way that's okay, it's correct, but honestly, when I'm studying the Bible, I want to know what the text says. It's my job as the student of Scripture to interpret it. And in a case like this, it's no harm, no foul, they're correct. But that's not, the text doesn't say, attend to his needs. The text says, cover his feet, right? So there are examples where they take liberties like that with a paraphrastic translation in our English Bibles, and they're actually wrong. So just keep that in mind. That's why as much as possible, you want a formal equivalent translation. Now, in this case, even a formal equivalent translation like the New King James or the New American Standard. Uh, anybody have New American Standard? Look up, if you haven't already, what is, how do they translate 1 Samuel 24, 3? He to relieve himself. So New King James is attend to his needs, relieve himself. So even, this is such a, obscure idiom that nobody is really going to know unless you have a commentary or look up a manners and customs book, that the English translators just went ahead and translated the idiom. And, and you and I were talking about translators and how sometimes idioms don't, you know, don't translate. And so from a purely translation perspective, I think that that's not wrong and it can be helpful. And I, I don't want to come down too hard on Bible translators but I just think you need to recognize in this case, here's an example where they're not translating, they're interpreting. And 
you may not have any choice but to do it that way when you're dealing with idioms because otherwise you're going to come across a lot of these and the student of scripture in our English Bibles is going to come to them and then they're going to have to say, okay, let me put this down and go get a good commentary or go get a good manners and customs book and figure out what is meant. And in some cases you might not even know that it's an idiom. So you might find yourself, well, what did he mean cover his feet? And it's not like the text is going to say, you know, with a blinking light, hey, this is a figure of speech. So I'm not being critical of modern English translations that do that. I am critical when they do it in cases where it's not an idiom. They're just kind of telling you what they think it means. And we talked about this many months ago in a separate series when we were going through uh, doctrines of salvation uh, here on Wednesday nights. It was before the What in the World is Going On series that we did. Uh, and we ended up getting sidetracked and talking a little bit about textual criticism and translation. And I just kind of went off the script and we, we spent a whole evening uh, talking about that. And I gave examples like um, in James 2, 14, where because most theologians think that James is saying that if you don't have works, your faith wasn't real and you're going to go to hell. Faith without works is dead. Uh, they actually insert a word in our English Bibles, and they say, um, "What? Uh, let's see, what is the verse? What doth it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith and does not have works? Can such faith save him? Can that faith save him? For that kind of faith, can that kind of faith save him? That's the way most modern English translations do it. But there's no, the words that kind of or such or that are not in the text. James is flatly saying, faith alone will not save you, period. So, so, but because they smooth it out and insert words paraphrastically, most people skip right over it and they end up with a bad interpretation. If he didn't, you'd go, wow, okay, well, let me think about that. What does he mean when he says faith won't save you? Well, there's only one kind of faith, but there are multiple kinds of save, and James is talking about physical salvation, and it changes the entire meaning of James 2, 14 to 26. James is saying nothing about eternal salvation. In fact, he begins the whole discussion by calling his listeners brethren. They're already saved. He's talking here about the, the practical consequences when believers don't have works to go along with their faith. And that kind of uh, behavior that's, that's inconsistent with the Christian life is not going to save you or rescue you or deliver you from the natural consequences of sin. Sin, he'd already said in chapter 1, if left to its natural extreme, is going to kill you. Sin kills. And uh, so he's challenging believers throughout the letter, but particularly in chapters 1 and 2, to put works to their faith. Not to get into heaven, but to, uh, to, to, avo to uh, avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. Make sense? So I've kind of chased a little bit of a rabbit here. All I'm saying is, in general, you want to choose a translation that tells you what the text says, and then you want to use these hermeneutics skills, these Bible study method skills, to interpret it correctly. Uh, here's a case where we have actually two figures of speech. Uh, one of them is an idiom in Hebrew, to cover your feet, and the other is a euphemism, which is a way to make something more polite that is otherwise more crude. Make sense? All right. Uh, number eight, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Now, this goes back to what you were saying earlier about the feet, you know. But you understand now why that doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> so this is a synecdoche, a part for the whole. Uh, are the Lord's mercies only new in the morning? 
No, they're, they're, it's a 24-7 operation. God is always merciful, right? So mourning there is a synecdoche part for the whole. It's referring to all day. Um, how about uh, Jesus when he said, you are the salt of the earth? Metaphor. Straight up metaphor. <laughs> you are this, right? So like if I said, you are smart, that's not a metaphor. That's just me complimenting you. You are smart. Um, um, now if I said to Gary, you are smart, that's sarcasm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I am just kidding. Um, Gary's the smartest guy in his row. Absolutely. He really is. All right. Um, so <laughs> I am in big trouble, I can tell. All right, how about this one? Moving on. Uh, at the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he be put to death. Yes. Metonym? Very good. Now explain that. What is a metonym? Uh, it's so hard to explain. I wish I had the definition. I know. Well, let me pull it up. A substitution of a word or phrase for another word or phrase associated with it. You brought yours from last week. Good. Yes. Yeah, I can't believe I printed the wrong thing. Yeah, so in fact, the example that we gave is pretty similar. Um, is it, you know, the, the, when Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, is that, is that what they're doing with their actual lip? No, lip is a metonym for what they're saying. And in the same way, if I can go back here, uh, is it the mouth, you know, that, that is causing people to be put, to, uh, the mouths of these witnesses that is causing people to be put to death? No, it's their testimony, right? It's what's coming out of their mouth. So at the mouth, the mouth there is a, a metonym. Uh, then we've got uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. What's that? Personification. Yes, very good. So explain that. What's being personified? Heavens, right. When's the last time somebody heard heavens speak? Or a cloud speak? I mean, if you do, we need to talk. <laughs> there might be some issues there. But no, it's, it's personifying heavens, right? Number 12. Oh, I, I did have this one up here, sorry. So we already skipped ahead and we dealt with this one. But this is another example of litotes, right? Litotes. Uh, I will not blot out is a way of saying I will emphasize your name. You know. um, here's Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Simile? Very good. Yeah, people always miss it. Simile, because it starts with the as, right? What if it had said streams of water pant for you, as a deer pant, I'm sorry, my soul pants for you as a deer pants for streams of water. We probably would have picked up on it a little more quickly because that's typically the way, but this is just kind of reversing the order, but it's still a simile. Uh, here's a good one, and I've heard this mispreached. In Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm, and, and we're going to, I can't wait till we get to the discussion of how to interpret prophetic literature because I've got some really good principles that I've put together that I've used for years that I think will challenge you and also encourage and, and hopefully uh, instruct. Uh, and, but people mishandle Psalm 22 all the time. It's a 
messianic psalm. And David is writing it, of course. I believe, speaking purely messianically. But he says, all my bones are out of joy. joint. And I've heard people say that Jesus was beaten so badly that every bone in his body was broken. No, they're missing the point. What is this saying? What, how, what figure of speech is this? Yes. Uh, I, I thought you raised your hand. I just had it ready to raise, but I, I think it might be a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, somebody else. I take back what I said earlier, by the way. Somebody else. Is it an idiom? Because it's something they used to say a lot, but we don't as much. No, it's not an idiom. Hyperbole. Hyperbole, right. It's just a, a way of exaggerating how painful he, uh, he is. So like we, we might say when you're sick, you know, when you've come down with that bioweapon COVID, you might say, man, my whole body aches. Now, we probably don't mean that. I mean, there are parts of our body that don't ache. I mean, does this part of your ear ache? I mean, maybe it does. I don't know. It seemed like it did for me. But that's just a hyperbolic way of saying, man, I feel terrible. So this is uh, hyperbole. Uh, and, and it's not the case that every bone in Jesus' body was broken. Uh, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Metaphor. A is B, right? Uh, here's another one. By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Jehovah does man live. Anthropomorphism, good. Again, ascribing human characteristics uh, to God. Does God have a mouth? He's not physical flesh and blood, so no. God is spirit. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Zoomorphism, I would, if this was a quiz, I would have accepted that. There's another one that I would also accept. So morphism is what she said if you didn't hear. Metaphor? A metaphor. Yeah, my preference or tendency is to see this more as a metaphor because a zoomorphism is almost like Jesus, you know, bleated like a lamb. You know, that would be a simile. As, you know, Jesus bleated or let's just say whatever. Jesus bleated on the cross. Yeah. <laughs> as Jesus was bleeding, he was bleating. Yeah. I don't know if that's blasphemous or not. I don't think so. I'm trying to make a point about how to understand the Bible. Um, but anyway, uh, hey, zoomorphism technically is ascribing animal characteristics to God. In this case, he's the Lamb of God. But he, either way, I mean, I think a zoomorphism applies because you know a, a characteristic of lambs was to be part of the sacrificial system. And he's saying that Jesus did the same thing. And he certainly did. Uh, how about this? The Lord is my shepherd. Wouldn't that just be an anthropomorphism? Hmm. Shepherds now, I, are people, we are shepherds, you know? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about that. It's, it's a metaphor, A is B, mm -hmm. but in the same sense that we just sort of dissected this uh, uh, Lamb of God, I guess you could say the same thing here, that perhaps this is a personification, right? Um, what about uh, neither shall s the sword go through your land? Euphemism? What's that? Euphemism? No, this is not a euphemism. I mean, I mean, I guess you could argue it's euphemistic, 
but it's sword here is a metonym for uh, bloodshed, war, battle. You know, you're, you're going to be peaceful, in other words. Yeah, I would, I would stick with metonym there. All right, uh, here's another one. Uh, Judges 3.24, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. I want to see. So that's a euphemism, obviously. Um, but I want to see how, somebody looked this up in the NASB. Judges 3.24. And then I want to look it up also in... Um, the new King James. Does anybody happen to have a King James? I do. With you? Really? Wow. See what it says, Judges 3.24. I'm just trying to see if this is another idiom cover, covering his feet. So the new King James says, attending to his needs. That's where I got this one. So what does NASB say? Relieving himself. Relieving himself. And KJV? Uh, find the verse here. Surely he covered his feet. Yeah, okay, covering his feet. So this is a repeat of the same thing. <laughs> what did you say? Okay. <laughs> yeah, covering his feet. So again, this would be both an idiom and a euphemism. <laughs> in the, in the uh, modern translations, it's strictly euphemistic. In original word-for-word word, King James, it would be expression of an idiom that is also a euphemism. What's that? Apparently it is potty humor up here. I don't know. Potty humor, yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to find out offline what that uh, <laughs> what you guys were talking about. Um, all right, then here's some uh, new ones that uh, I introduced last week. Uh, here's one in Ephesians chapter 3, and we see a lot of these in Scripture, uh, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It's a paradox, right? He's saying you can know this love which is beyond knowledge. Well, how can you know something that's beyond knowledge? But uh, let me go back and show you uh, the definition of a paradox from a literary. I mean, we know what a paradox is as a principle, but in a in literary sense, a paradox is a statement that seems absurd, uh, absurd, self-contradictory, or contrary to logical thought, but it's there to make a point. It's there to get you to say, wait a minute, what did he say? And to think about it. This is Jesus used these frequently such as in his great discipleship passage in Matthew 16 when he said, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. If you want to lose your life, you have to find it. Now, a lot of people have built an entire soteriology around that verse, not understanding that he was speaking intentionally, paradoxically, to get their attention. Right? He wasn't saying that if you want to go to heaven, you've got to surrender up all your rights and make Jesus Lord and you know follow him and put him on the throne of your life. And a lot of the Lordship Salvationists and Reformed guys will point to verses like that as, as if to say that faith involves this complete surrender and this complete pledge or promise. But he's, he's trying to get their attention. And he's basically what he's saying, if you go back and read the context, is you, you've got to abandon your faith in your own self-righteousness, come to Christ humbly, humble yourselves, and say, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And in so doing, then you can be saved. He wasn't saying anything about actually giving something uh, up. That word also has marriage in it, doesn't 
it also has a marismism uh, in it. Uh, in what? What's that? Oh, back to the, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong one. Yeah, back to Ephesians. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. It has multiple merisms there. Width and length and depth and height. In other words, the full complement of God's love. All right. Good, good observation. So that has a merism too. All right. Uh, what about Joel 2? We talked a lot about Joel 2. All right. You know this one? Go ahead. Litotes. Fear not? Well, no, he's actually saying don't be afraid. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's not, yeah, everything, everything looks like a figure of speech now. Um, so, uh, this is an example of apostrophe. Uh, he's actually addressing the, you know, the, the land. Uh, so uh, let me go back and give you the definition oh, of see. apostrophe. Yeah, he's in the midst of his speech. He's, he's been talking about the land and how Israel will get the land in the final days. But apostrophe is the direct address of an absent or imaginary person. You see this a lot in uh, Shakespeare. You see apostrophes. It's a literary technique. So they'll be talking about someone with someone else. And then they'll sort of turn and look off and say, Bob, if you can hear me, I wish you'd just do this. You know, or, or Bob, I, you know, and, and he's not even in the room, but they're just addressing it. That's an apostrophe. But it's also addressing uh, an you know, inanimate object, and like he did the land. Or here Paul uses apostrophe when he is quoting from Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, and he says, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? So It's apostrophe. Uh, so just another one to kind of uh, watch out for. Uh, and then we've got uh, another apostrophe here. What ails you, O.C., that you fled? This is kind of a, a fun one, really, because he's speaking of God's majestic power, and he turns to the sea and says, O mountains that you skipped off like rams. So there's a simile in the midst of an apostrophe. <laughs> So you got multiple uh, uh, figures of speech sometimes. Um, and then, oh, little hills like lambs. Um, and then we've got uh, another one. Or no, this is, uh, yeah, it's apostrophe, but it's also a metonymy. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Right. So speaking to the earth emphatically. Anytime you see a word repeated, especially in the Hebrew language, it's a, it's a passion, it's an emphasis. Like when Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my hands like a chicken gathers her chicks. Real sad. Well, I mean, it's, I'm talking about the Jerusalem, Jerusalem part, yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know... Uh, yeah, I don't know why I said metonymy here. Maybe earth is a metonym for everyone, right? Yeah, earth is a part for the whole, is a, is a not a part for the whole, but a representation of everyone in it. But he's actually speaking to the earth, so that's an apostrophe. Uh, and then uh, here's Job. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh. Uh, and I have, 
escaped by the skin of my teeth. Yeah. Would that be hyperbole for the top part at least anyway? Uh, possibly. My bone clings to my skin. Could be hyperbole. Uh, but I was focusing on the phrase skin of my teeth. How many of you heard that in English? This is one of those that I talked about last week. So many of our English idioms come straight from Scripture, like apple of my eye. This is one of them. It just means narrowly. To say I've, I've escaped by the skin of my teeth to mean I narrowly escaped. You know? um, and uh, then we've got another idiom here from Deuteronomy 20. Um, this is in the context where he's giving laws in, in Deuteronomy, of course, the book of the law, uh, <clears throat> about uh, warfare and battles. And he says, The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go in and return to his house, lest, his heart, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. What does it mean for your heart to faint? Right? It means to lose courage, right? And we, we use that in English. My heart fainted within me. Right? It just means I lost courage. Right? But that's an idiom that actually comes from the Hebrew culture. And it's a pretty good one when you think about it because you know, they understood that the heart was the center of their you know, emotions. Heart and mind were used interchangeably throughout the Hebrew literature. I've t documented that in certain places. And, and so they understood that courage was related to the heart and they're basically, they don't know what it means to physically faint. You know, you just kind of collapse, right? And you're no longer conscious for a, a bit. Well, when you lose courage, your heart's kind of done that, hasn't it? It's fainted, right? It's not standing strong. Uh, <clears throat> and then this one is uh, classic King James. And this is another uh, Hebrew idiom. Um, he, he says, uh, if I... Leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light, and that pisseth against the wall. Well, that phrase, pisseth against the wall, uh, sometimes in modern English, of course, is going to be translated urinating against the wall, is a Hebrew idiom for male. It just means men, right? So, you could read it this way. So and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave all that pertain to him by the morning light, and any men. He's going to kill everybody. I'm not going to leave a single man. That's what he says. But any that pisseth against the wall is a m m idiom for uh, males. It's the opposite. <laughs> it's a, it's a, is there an opposite of euphemism? <laughs> it's a crudism. I'm thinking more of our dogs than men. Yeah. Yep. Uh, all right. Um, and then here, one final one. They brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. That's a Latotes. That's a Latotes, right. What it means, they were overjoyed, right? They were overjoyed. All right. Any questions about, um, we've got about 15 minutes left, which I think is enough time to start the next point in our grammatical principles of interpretation, but any questions as we close out our discussion of figures of speech? I hope you see why it's important to understand figures of speech. It makes a difference in interpretation. 
not not all the time, not even most of the time, but sometimes. I mean, most of the time you read it and you don't even have to know that it's a figure of speech. You still understand what the text is saying. But sometimes recognizing that a figure of speech is being employed, such as Elitotes in Revelation 3.5, you know, or even in this one crude one that we just said, he's basically talking about all males. You would read right over that and you'd be puzzled thinking, what, what is he saying there, right? All right, well, let's move on. We're in the midst of this 24 rules, and the next one is number 16, which we introduced a couple of times, but I want to single it out now for a little more attention. Uh, and this has to do with prophetic literature. Interpret the words of the prophets in their usual, literal, and historical sense, unless the context or manner in which they are fulfilled clearly indicates they have a symbolic meaning. Now, what this is addressing is... People, for some reason, take their rules of interpretation, set them aside when they get to prophetic literature. Now, let me give you the perfect example of this from a, from a particular theological group, the covenant theologians or reformed theologians. So they will interpret prophecies in the Old Testament, such as Isaiah 7.14, which is what? Anybody know? What does it prophesy? The virgin shall conceive and bear a child. The virgin birth of Christ, right? Uh, or Micah 5.2. Anybody know what that prophesies? Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Okay. Uh, they'll interpret passages like that related to the first advent of Christ, literally, as they should be, because even though they're prophetic, you still use normal rules of language. And Jesus said the virgin is going to have a child. Matthew quotes that as well, and that's what happened. Uh, 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 Micah said that, that Bethlehem is going to be the birthplace of the Messiah. And G Matthew quotes that too as well, by the way. Uh, and that's what happened. But then for some reason, when they deal with other prophecies from the same writers, especially like Isaiah, very much they do this in Isaiah, that deal with the second coming of Christ, they totally say, oh, this is symbolically referring to Jesus reigning in your hearts, not a literal throne. And, you know, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 to 48, that describes in great detail the dimensions and grandeur and details and specifications of the temple that Jesus is going to reign from in the millennium. Oh, that's just one giant nine-chapter metaphor. He's talking about your heart. He's reigning in your heart, right? So they completely shift their hermeneutic, and they take the first Advent prophecies, literally, and some reason they say, oh, these are symbolic languages here, and it really means the church, or it really means spiritual kingdom, or, you know, non-physical kingdom, you know, that kind of thing. And there's no justification for it. Nothing textually or grammatically or in the context. It's just because their theology teaches them there's not going to be a literal earthly kingdom of Christ in most cases. Now, there are some Reformed guys that uh, believe in a literal earthly kingdom. They're called historic premillennialists, but they don't distinguish between the church and Israel, and they don't distinguish between the rapture and the second coming. So they're still just as guilty. Uh, I mean, not as guilty. I, I be, if I was the judge, I'd probably give a covenant theologian life, and I'd give you know a reformed guy like 50 years if I was sentencing them, you know, just to just differentiate a little bit. So you have to you have to interpret prophets the same way you do anything. There's not, there's not some justification for 
ignoring the words on the page and assigning some allegorical meaning to them. Right? But there are certain principles to keep in mind when interpreting prophetic literature. It's a particular genre, right? And I think next week uh, we'll actually talk about genre before I go on to talk about other types of literature, like uh, narratives and parables, for example. But uh, I just really enjoy, because I'm such a, I have such an interest in Bible prophecy, it's one of my passions, I think this is important. Uh, so number one, as I just said, follow the customary usage of language. Just because it's prophetic literature doesn't mean it's symbolic or allegorical or whatever. The text will tell you when it's symbolic. You know. So you do see in apocalyptic literature like Ezekiel and Revelation a, a lot of imagery, but the text tells you this. John will say, I saw this and I, I saw something that looked like that and it seemed like locusts here. And, you know, he's, clearly he's describing something that is meant to, to be taken symbolic and we have to study the scripture to you know, figure out what that symbol is referring to. But you don't get to do that unless the text tells you that. Um, commit no historical cultural blunder. Uh, illustrations used in the Bible are, are often drawn from the culture of the original audience. We're going to see this when we look at parables uh, in a moment. And we've already seen some of that in looking at these idioms that we've talked about. But knowing the lives and times of the Bible writers is, is critical for correctly handling the Word of God. And that's why you know, a good manners and customs book, um, there's one by Ralph Gower, for example, that I've used for years, uh, that goes canonically, so it's going to be organized the way your Bible is from Genesis to Revelation. And if you come across something where it seems to be making a reference that only those in that culture would understand, then you can look it up in there, and more often than not, it's discussed in there, and you understand what he's talking about, like you would understand covering your feet, for example. You know. um, but if we don't have at least an appreciation for or understanding of that, the, the times of the author, we could end up uh, making a mistake. Uh, obviously, and I love this, make Christ central in all interpretations. Ultimately, Christ is the hero of all prophecy. He's the one that's going to come back, as we've been talking about on Sundays, and defeat the Antichrist. He's going to be the one that takes the throne. He's going to make the, be the one that makes all things new. Uh, so keep that in mind. Uh, be conscious of the context. Again, this is nothing profound. It's just a principle that's particularly important to keep in mind when dealing with prophetic literature. Um, and then we've all, the, all of these we've discussed previously in my 24 rules that we've already talked about, but uh, interpret Scripture with Scripture. This is what I call the analogy of faith. I don't call it that. That's a theological uh, label for this principle. The analogy of faith that Scripture best interprets Scripture. All Scripture must be in harmony with each other. You can't have one interpretation here that contradicts another interpretation over here in Scripture, right? Uh, number six, recognize the progress of revelation. Now, this is important. You, the Bible was revealed by God through the pen of human authors over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors in three different languages on three different continents. And you can never have later revelation, chronologically speaking, that comes back and fundamentally changes the meaning of something that God revealed earlier. So this is called the principle of the pro progressive revelation. And people violate this with prophecy with great regularity. 
the same uh, people that I mentioned earlier. Uh, again, not personally attacking them. They love the Lord. They're great men and women of God. They're just wrong. And they're wrong in a big way when it comes to some of this stuff. But they'll take passages from the New Testament that speak about the church and they'll go back and say, see, this is what David meant in 2 Samuel 7 or what God meant when he spoke to David in 2 Samuel 7. Well, that's impossible because when God gave the, David, the Davidic promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would rule on a throne someday, literally, David couldn't possibly have understood it if he needed to wait a thousand years for the New Testament to come along and give him more information. That's disingenuous of God to say something. I'm going to tell you something, David, that's impossible for you to understand. No, David knew exactly what God meant. David knew in the context what a throne was, what a temple was, what a kingdom was. He, he doesn't, you can't read the New Testament back into the Old Testament and say, well, when he said throne, temple, and kingdom, what he really meant was the church. That's, that's, that's a violation of the progress of Revelation. The New Testament can give additional details, more information, new, entirely new information, like the church. That's what the New Testament calls a mystery. A mystery is previously unrevealed information. We think of mystery, we think of something confusing, or you know, you've got to figure it out. Now, mystery just means previously unrevealed revelation. So Paul calls the church a mystery in Ephesians. Calls the rapture a mystery in 1 Corinthians. So you're not going to find the rapture or the church mentioned in the Old Testament. So we just need to be sensitive to the progress of Revelation. Any questions about that? Comments? Number seven, grant one interpretation to each passage. So again, prophecy, like the fundamental singularity of meaning principle, is only going to have one uh, meaning. Uh, you know, sometimes they take prophecies and they make them out to be, you know, the, the gift that keeps on giving. Is that me? Okay, good. I can't hear. Uh, so uh, this, is, this is important because, as we're going to talk about here in just a second, and actually we're almost out of time, so I'll just introduce it, and then we'll, we'll pick up there next week. But um, when prophecies, people tend to think that a prophecy can have multiple meanings. Uh, it, it's, it's a dual fulfillment concept. Uh, so they'll say, for, here's the perfect example, and I'll talk more about this next week, but Psalm 22, the Davidic psalm that we talked about earlier, the Messianic psalm, some people will say that David was speaking about himself and that he literally endured all these things and then that it also had a second meaning of this is what's going to happen to Christ. Now, we know that it happened to Christ because Jesus quotes Psalm 22 from the cross, but I reject that possibility. I don't have a category for dual fulfillment because it violates the principle of singularity of meaning. So I believe Psalm 22 is purely messianic. David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, was speaking a messianic prophecy. He wasn't saying anything about what was happening to him. Now, at least theologically and hermeneutically, in terms of principles of language, you could hold that it only applied to David. It was purely historical, and David was talking about his experience. And then you could say that Jesus simply quotes it as an analogy that, that is okay. That doesn't violate any rules. But I think the preponderance of the evidence, if you compare the passages, is that 
David was speaking purely messianically, and we see a lot of what happened in conjunction with the crucifixion of our Lord described in Psalm 22, and I think it was purely messianic. So this is what we mean by number seven. And then number eight is always choose the simplest alternative. I've seen some prophecy uh, teachers that just weave together the most you know, complex interpretation of a passage that just really misses the point. So uh, next week, I'll get into three kinds of prophetic fulfillment. You only really have three options when you come to a prophecy, a future prophecy. You know, a lot of the prophets in Scripture talk about things that happened in their day. They were prophesying to their people, right? Like, say, Jonah with Nineveh. Not that Nineveh was his people, but you, know, you see my point. Um, but some prophecies are yet to be fulfilled and future. And we need to understand there's really only three options. Uh, you know, and, and it's pretty easy to tell in the context what those are. So I'll leave you hanging there since it's 7 o'clock. Any closing thoughts or questions or comments about anything we've talked about tonight? All right. You were rather subdued tonight, I, he said, thankfully. Um, so uh, that's good. But uh, hopefully you'll, I, I guess you used it all up on Sunday with your rapid-fire questions in the 9 o'clock hour. All right, well, thank you guys, and we will see you uh, next time.